Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast. I am so excited you stopped by today. We have a great guest with us today on the show, Mr. Sean Kosofsky of the Nonprofit Fixer. You are going to love this episode if you're looking at ways on how to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of you as an executive director of a nonprofit organization. This is also great to listen to if you are a freelance grant writer or nonprofit consultant and need to work with executive directors of nonprofit organizations. It's going to give you great insight into what they have to balance through their work and how they really need assistance and how you can serve them better. So this is wonderful because Sean really does talk about, you know, a lot of the big things, how to manage your time as an executive director, how to get out of that 24-hour, you know, seven-day-a-week virtual fire kind of poverty mindset into actually being effective. He's going to give you some great tips and steps on how you can be more effective. He is also going to talk about how you can create better partnerships and collaboration with your board of directors as an executive director. And then, of course, he's going to talk about, oh, the big elephant in the room, right? The executive director needs to do all the fundraising. He's going to kind of spin that on its side and show you how you don't have to go from stressed thinking about how you're going to fund this nonprofit, keeping you awake at night, um, into actually learning how to delegate and how to collaborate more. So this is an excellent podcast. I absolutely love Sean, and I'm really excited to say that he is also going to offer all you listeners out there a free master class. So that's going to happen on March 24th. If you are interested in getting in on that master class, and it is the Executive Director Masterclass, Three Expert Strategies to Slay Your Doubts, Boost Your Confidence, and Career, you can definitely sign up at grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 158. That is um, today's podcast episode where you can also find all of the show notes. Once again, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 158. There's also another resource that he mentions in here about it's an infographic on 10 key responsibilities of executive directors. And I also have that in the show notes. So please do check that out. And you can also sign up for that free masterclass where we're going to go way more nerded out into executive directorship of nonprofits. And it's going to be amazing. So if you love this uh, podcast episode today, please make sure you go to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 158. So you can also sign up for the free masterclass, executive director masterclass, as well as um, go ahead and download the infographic for the 10 key responsibilities of executive directors. Today, he's going to talk about how to utilize that infographic. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And if you do, please leave a review on grant writing and funding on iTunes or any of your podcast player as it does help other people find the episode. All right, enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rusick with Grant Writing and Funding, and I am super excited today. I have Mr. Sean Kosofsky with me again on the podcast. It's been a while, but he's back. Welcome so much to the show, Sean. 
Thanks so much. Great to see you again, Holly. Yeah, it's so good to see you. I'm so excited. So we have, you know, I'm just really, it's really cool how I can um, meet people on this podcast such as yourself. And it's been great that we've been just continuing relationships since we've talked on the podcast last time. And, you know, we're in the same field. You do a lot more focus on nonprofits, on all of the board development, on executive director training, on all of those types of things. And you're an executive director yourself in a nonprofit. Whereas I focus more on the grants and it really aligns well. So I just want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your expertise and just, yeah, uh, creating a friendship with me. It's great. <laughs> it's great to have friends all over the world like yourself. And I love partnering with people who are doing such amazing work and who have such a great reputation. So I'm just so happy to be part of your podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. All right. So, um, Mr. Sean, so I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to read your bio again, but you have appeared on the podcast before. So I just want to give a little note to our listeners. Um, definitely check out episode 121. And that was the flawless framework to transform a nonprofit's board of directors with Sean Kosofsky. And that was amazing. That was actually my highest download podcast in 2020. So hurrah to you. So a lot of people were really interested in that framework on nonprofit board of directors. Um, so really great. And then of course I had you in the mashup in episode 152, where I had the mashups of the, the most listened, the top listened to podcast in 2020. So we had a little bit from there. So if you wanna find out more, especially about nonprofit board of directors, do check out those episodes. So today we're gonna to be focusing, I know a little bit more on executive director training. And just by reading your bio, I'm gonna show you why, why to the listeners out there, that's important. And you're going to get a lot of gold nuggets from it. So Mr. Sean Kosofsky is the nonprofit fixer. He has worked in nonprofits for more than 27 years, including as executive director for five organizations. He's worked in policy, communications, grassroots advocacy, direct service, development, management, and served on numerous board of directors. He has raised millions of dollars for causes, candidates, and campaigns. His work has appeared in news stories around the world, and he has offered webinars or blog posts through AFP, Candid, Idealware, Bloomerang, Wild Africate, Pamela Grows, Motivate Mondays, and of course here on grant writing and funding. You've also worked on a wide range of issues including LGBTQ equality, reproductive justice, voting access, bullying prevention, climate change, and more. You offer coaching, consulting, training, and free tools on your website, nonprofitfixer.com. And of course, courses at learn.mindgapconsulting.org. All right, guys, I will have show notes to those links in there. So that's why it's great to have you on because you've done so much work and man, oh man, looking at the work that you do with the new administration coming in, I mean, just politics on the table for a minute, that must be huge for you right now and all the work that you're doing. Can you just speak to that for a second? Yeah, in my day job, of course, we work, I work at a climate change organization that helps train other climate organizations how to use best practices, right, in all of their campaigns, whether they're activating volunteers or getting people to sign petitions or trying to pass good policy and defeat bad policy. So that's what we do across the climate space. We have maybe 1500 climate organizations working in our network. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a really, really great time since the election because now we've got some folks who really care about science and facts and the climate and making sure that, you know, not denying climate change, but actually believing that we have the abilities to create tons of jobs and solve this energy crisis and this pollution crisis all at the same time. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful, um, sea change. 
lots of opportunity, which is going to mean more funders, more funding, more opportunity, more people working in this space because all the stars have aligned in the Biden administration and among the philanthropic world to really get some stuff done. And by us joining the Paris Accord, the world is sort of like watching the United States right now. So there's a really great opportunity on that front alone, but on a wide range of issues that nonprofits care about, there's about to be just a huge set of opportunities um, in the U.S. because of the, the what happened with the elections. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for talking on that. I mean, uh, just to, you know, and the thing is, is a lot of times, yes, in grant writing and funding, we do have to look at politics because a lot of the money follows what the administration is doing, uh, what Congress approves, right? What What's going on? So um, to look at this as, you know, we tap into the world, and that's one of the questions I'm glad you answered that is, the funding is now on the table a little bit more. It's expanded, it's broadened. Um, so looking at that, do you really see a lot more um, grants potentially coming out for nonprofits, a more of a variety of nonprofits maybe, and other kind of funding sources? Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting in the climate space is that because of COVID, some funders of course have pulled back, but some have said, hey, actually now is the time that people need us. We're going to increase our endowment or increase our philanthropic grant making uh, we benefited from that in 2020. We had a number of funders realize the, the challenge ahead of us and actually increase their funding. But there's also on climate change, for example, some funders were starting to say, hey, under the Trump administration, we might not make a lot of inroads in the US at the state and national level. So let's start moving our funding to India or China or places where we are actually making some progress. Now, I think some of that funding is going to come back. So there are giant funders out there who will see opportunity for the next four, potentially eight years to really invest in both grassroots and philanthropic and um, you know, institutional change here in the US. But in addition to that, I do think that there will be more money out there available because increasingly because of the giving pledge, more and more older rich folks are trying to give away 99% of their wealth while they're still alive. So it's not the same model where it was Ford and all these foundations in Carnegie and Rockefeller where you would just insist that your foundation will last for hundreds of years and you pass it down generation to generation. More and more donors Chan Zuckerberg, Bezos, a lot of these, they want to give away their wealth while they're alive. And that means that they're going to have to push out a lot of money much faster. Many, many foundations are starting to sunset. They're starting to spend down their endowments in the next five years. So I would absolutely see and look for more dollars coming to the field, not necessarily more foundations, but more dollars in general. You just have to know, you have to be paying attention to a lot of the industry newsletters, talking to professional grant writers like yourself who are studying the trends and seeing where those dollars are going to be at because there is a lot of opportunity right now. Nice. Yeah, and that's even what I saw in 2020. It was fewer grants given, but in a much higher dollar amount. So, you know, that could lead to more competitiveness. Um, however, I think collaboration is always key because some of those huge dollars, you know, certain nonprofits might not be set up to receive, you know, uh, multi-million dollar grant awards, but if they combine with a few nonprofits and, you know, have MOUs and show that they have expertise to spend those monies and manage them through, a, you know, a collaboration, then it can be done, right? So that's another yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. There was a new foundation that started last year that was charged with giving away a hundred million just in their first year. And the staff of three were like, how do we even give away a hundred million thoughtfully in one year? And it had to be really, really large, like three, four or five million dollar gifts at a time very quickly to get the money out the door because they, they really felt the urgency and the need. Um, and 
in addition to the size of the gifts, like I was speaking with another foundation the other day, their, their rule is we only give gifts that are a million dollars or higher, but they also can't be more than 10% of, a found, of an organization's budget. So we really only give to really, really large nonprofits, which is, can be frustrating if you're smaller. But the one thing I'd say to your audience also is, don't be inhibited by your size. If you're a small organization, you know how to absorb a million dollar grant. You know how to absorb 2 million. Don't just let the big dogs, the big organizations go after that money, right? There is a way to, to demonstrate to funders that don't be, don't look at us at five staff and think that we don't know how to effectively spend a, a gift this size, right? So more and more small organizations are flexing their muscle to large funders and saying, we keep staying small because you don't believe in us. It's time for you to believe in us and move these gifts to the groups that are actually getting stuff done. I love that. That's so great. Yes. And I, you know, just approaching them and saying, Hey, look, we can spend this and this is how we can do it. And a million dollars may seem like a lot of money to some of you, but once you start working on a budget to really work on certain programs, it can go pretty quickly. So um, definitely, you know, it's all look at how you look at finances and money, <laughs> but it really, it's about how does that translate into impact, right? And when you can really look at it from that perspective, then you're like, ooh, this could create a lot of great positive impact for our target demographic. So yeah, I love that. Okay, so thank you for talking politics for a minute with me on our little political session. But I really, you know, it's important for us to look at these things, right, to talk about them and in this world of nonprofits. Um, and that brings me to another world of nonprofits. Now, before when we had you on the show, like I mentioned, we were talking about board of directors. And now we're really going to kind of talk about executive directors. And you are an executive director and have been for a number of years, but you also work with a variety of our executive directors. So can you kind of tell me, like, like, what are some of the, the challenges they may be facing at this point in time? And how can you, you know, how do you work with them to overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, I think that executive directors are like all over the place, right? 10% of the economy are nonprofits. Could be, it could be a large university or hospital down to a tiny soup kitchen, right? So nonprofits have a wide range of different challenges. I will say that one thing that cuts across all nonprofits in terms of executive directors is that overwhelmingly you are working for a board of people that are volunteers that don't work there. They tend to not be subject matter experts in what the nonprofit does and they're not nonprofit experts. So it's the weirdest model, right? So as an executive director, it's pretty isolating. Like my bosses don't work here. They're voting on my livelihood. They don't know what they're doing. They've hired me because I know what I'm doing. So all the more reason to establish a partnership. A lot of executive directors believe that they need to be in either one of two boats. I want my board out of my hair because I want to do whatever I want and I don't want them meddling or trying really, really hard to get their board to be more engaged and more hands-on and giving them support. And finding that balance is really important because the running of a nonprofit is a partnership. The board does the governance, the ED does the operations, right? Yeah. But it is a partnership. You can't be like, in two different worlds. You have to be completely talking all the time and one is executing, one's planning. And so, but most EDs are sort of straddling this, how do I get my board to show up, care, do what they said they're gonna do and also support me, right? So mm -hmm. the most successful executive directors are those that build a really strong long-term rapport and relationship with their board. It is worth the energy. Don't just be like, oh, leave me alone, get out of my lane. I'll see you next year when we pass the budget. Like really, I would think about doing the opposite. 
Mm-hmm. Um, another challenge that executive directors have, and I think that the vast majority of small nonprofits don't do this, and that is that executive directors need an employment contract. I'm a big believer that all workers should have a contract, yeah. or at least the ability to fire workers should actually be harder. No one should lose their job if there wasn't if if, if they didn't lose their job for cause, right? They didn't do anything wrong. So most workers should have protections, but the level of disruption to an executive's life and to the organization's outcomes, if the executive doesn't have protection, is really important. So in the nonprofit sector, all executive directors need um, some kind of employment contract, right? So if the board decides out of nowhere, we're going to move headquarters to Dallas, or we're just going to change the mission, or we're just going to remove, we're going to make you a co-director with this other person. Well, this is a material change to the job I was offered. So I'm, I'm out, right? Like having an employment contract gives you the ability to walk or be paid a severance. And it still allows a nonprofit to fire someone without cause, but that comes with a penalty. It's called severance, right? So most nonprofit executive directors need the stability to protect their paycheck. If they've moved for a job, they need security on their mortgage, their family, their income to have that security and to always be thinking about the organization instead of like protecting your own butt, you need that employment contract. If I know I've got a contract for the next three years and no one's gonna come after me for something silly, I get to focus on what the organization is doing. So protecting your livelihood, getting that employment contract, something we're gonna talk about in the training we'll do later on um, this spring, And then the third thing executive directors uh, really are worried about and stressed about is money. They are constantly, the thing that EDs lose sleep over is either how am I going to pay my staff? How am I going to meet payroll? How am I going to handle this budget? And the secondary thing is how am I going to handle losing this really critical person on my team, right? It's not uncommon for there to be a critical, critical person on your team that might be thinking of leaving. And it's like so disruptive to have to run another search and to lose that institutional memory or even that good friend of yours on staff. So losing talent and then also like um, uh, the, the idea of not being able to pay your staff. These are the stresses, right? So there's a yeah. few things you can't get done in a nonprofit if you don't have the money, which is why I focus a lot on getting executive directors to be all in on fundraising. Yeah, no, I, I love these points. They're so, and these are things that I've heard time and time again, our experiences of being on a board of directors myself. Um, and just to kind of like throw out a little uh, plug there is also, yes, as Sean mentioned, he's also gonna be doing a masterclass on this. So we're gonna go in detail on executive training and that's the executive director masterclass, three expert strategies to slay your doubts, boost your confidence and career. So definitely go to the show notes to, so you can register for that free masterclass um, that's coming up in March. All right, but yeah, so back to this too is uh, my question on this, with executive directors. And I love you how you talked about like this partnership with their board, but what happens because a lot of times boards change, right? Every year, like a board I'm on, we vote in, there's, it's a staggered election. So every year, some board members leave, some, some stay, and then some new ones come on, right? So it's not just a whole new set of board of directors every two years or every four years, right? So in that makeup, there's always kind of new personalities, there's new things going on. How does the executive director keep up with board um, kind of renewal, right? Different board of directors coming on and leaving. So I do think that, so I've always worked in nonprofits that were under $2 million or under $3 million and like maybe, less than 15 staff. So I've always worked in the smaller nonprofit space. 
And what I'll say is in that universe, it's usually really, really hard to find good board members yeah. that have been there or are willing to stick it out for years and years. So I am actually not a huge fan of term limits. I do believe yeah. in terms. I think everyone should have like basically two-year terms and you can do staggered terms, but forcing good people off the board after four or six years, I've, I've always been like, why would we ever get rid of someone who's raising money, totally engaged, is a, is a, is a, uh, you know, uh, an amazing personality in the boardroom that gets things done. Like, why would I be forced to kick that person out? So if you've been around a long time or you're a much larger organization and you've got a great body of people that could join your board, that term limit thing might really work. But for a lot of small organizations, I don't necessarily think we have to do term limits. But I do think at the end of every term, yeah. the ED and the chair sit together and they say, hey, Steve, Everything seems to be working out on our end. You're showing up to meetings, you're doing your work, you're raising money, you're a great ambassador. We think you could do another two years. How about you? Yeah, I'd love to do another two years. Great. And then you just kind of let them do another term. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of engage. So if you have that kind of a great ongoing relationship and you're willing to have people stay on two, four, or even six years, you can reduce that level of churn, that level of turnover. Yeah. So one, don't necessarily think you have to do term limits, but you should do terms. There should be windows of time where it's time for them to go because at the end of a term, it's a natural window to be like, bye, Steve, we're just not going to re renew you because you have been kind of dead weight, right? So yeah. terms are important. Um, but the best thing for an ED to deal with that level of turn and whatever is to be very, very, this is one of the things, like I said earlier, executive directors who last the longest and who have the best like job protection and job security are those that spend that extra time building relationships with the board. So wherever your nominations committee or your governance committee is of your board, who's recruiting and onboarding board members, spend a lot of time in that world, in that world, right? If your nominations committee or board governance committee is identifying and nominating people for the board, be all up in those relationships, right? So whenever it is time for some churn, you already have and know these people. It isn't some surprise that your board plucked their accountant, like that your board chair has a great accountant friend of his and just put them on the board without you even knowing, right? Mm -hmm. You're very, very hands-on on these relationships. So even if personalities are changing, there is an onboarding, an orientation, an expectation, norms, values that are consistent and mm -hmm. that everyone trusts the ED. And like, you can't join the board until the ED says that this is like a, a, like a really good thing for the staff also, right? That partnership. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that really helps the ED and the board. I love that. I love like relooking. And you know, you guys who, who's listening out here and you would say, yeah, but we do have term limits in our bylaws. Those things can always be amended. So if you are really resonating with what Sean is saying today about that, that could be something that you can amend. Because I do think, you know, even in this year, one of the boards I'm on, what we did was we ended up um, asking if some of the board members who were supposed to be coming off for their term limits, if they wanted to extend another year because of just COVID and we already had, we had this new system running and there's so many things going on, right? So they ended up staying on as ex officio members, which was a really kind of a middle ground, right? For how we would, we were functioning without having to amend the bylaws, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it was really nice just to um, do that. And I love that too. You're don't get rid of somebody if they're passionate and want to stay on and they're active. Like, you know, like they could even, instead of running again, they could stand or they could run again, right? And serve another term. That's also another um, opportunity that you could have without amending the bylaws. Um, but I think that's really, really great. And that's probably one of the biggest things I see too, is that relationship with the ED 
and the board of directors, right? Yeah, and I will say that I'm the outlier here. I do think that a lot of the consultant class out there, the consultant core, all of the best practice people and gurus believe that term limits are a superior way to go. Um, I just don't, I just don't buy that groupthink type of mentality. I just don't think it's necessary. I don't think that all organizations operate that way. Small organizations need the nimbleness of being able to yeah. hold on to people for a while. If you think that the board you're holding on to is stunting your growth, revisit that. But forcing them off with term limits is the thing I, I generally resist. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. I think that's really, really important. And then another question I have. So as far as an executive director, um, here's the thing. And you, you kind of mentioned this in the beginning is they may be, especially in small nonprofits where you may be the only staff member. So I see a lot of smaller nonprofits, the only staff they actually have is ED. And then they may have some consultants under there doing different things. Um, but you know, they only have one employee. Um, what I've seen that kind of, uh, you know, it's hard about that is they start doing all the administrative work <laughs> as well as trying to lead and be the visionary and trying to execute, you know, the actual guidance from the board. So they have like, they're wearing a lot of hats and how, how does, how can someone balance that? And is there any solutions to help them out? Yeah, every nonprofit's different, right? I've seen I've seen organizations where some one ED comes in because they are a subject matter expert. It is an organization working on stem cell research and they are a scientist. Mm -hmm. And the understanding is this person's not going to be expected to do any fundraising or any management. They are here because they are the person who we can deploy to lawmakers or to whoever, and they are just like the thought leader, right? We will find the money elsewhere. Or we so you have organizations with a wide range of dynamics where the, the ED, everyone just knows the ED is here for this one thing and we've hired a deputy to do all this other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But in the case of the solo ED, like you mentioned, where there's a lot of things on your plate, I do have this great infographic on my website, the, the 10 key responsibilities of, a, of an executive director. And there are these basically like 10 areas where you've got to keep an eye out, right? So some of it comes naturally over time. Like there is a human resources role. There is a board management role. There is a fundraising role. There's these 10 different roles. So in, you can keep this as a checklist next to your desk. Am I occasionally revisiting these 10 big responsibilities, right? Setting leadership and vision, making sure I'm doing due diligence, reducing risk, all of the things that an executive director is supposed to do. But you're also supposed to be ensuring the success of your programs, creating the conditions for fundraising success, right? So you can use this uh, infographic as sort of like a checklist on your desk, or you can even build it into your calendar. Some people are really great about whether it's a task management tool like Asana or using their calendar to work block. I do put things on my calendar to work block. I know in my day job, I need to be doing relationship building. It's harder under COVID. I'm not going to conferences and, and, and pressing the flesh and meeting, meeting and greeting people. So I have to build into my calendar two hours a week, make sure if there are other movement leaders that I don't know yet that I'm introducing myself, getting on their calendars. So I set aside a time to go do that. And then I set aside a couple of times every week to uh, look through my prospecting list to see where am I gonna identify future funders and, and foundations for support. So you can literally put it on your calendar every two weeks to tackle one of these 10 areas that nonprofit executive directors have to focus on. So it is there, it is present, or you just build it into your work plan. But you do, if you neglect any of them, um, you, you do run the risk when you come up for your annual review with your board that they're gonna be like, hey, you didn't do this thing. 
if you feel like there's some area where you don't know what you're doing, you can either like ask the board for support, hire it out. Like I've never been great on the financials, like, like, like bookkeeping. Like I don't, I don't do QuickBooks. Uh, so I always hire out the bookkeeping and the, all of that stuff. And I supervise it, but I just don't do that myself. So I hire that out. But some executive directors are like, I love the books. I love doing bookkeeping. I'm a nut for that kind of stuff, right? So every of these different, but as long as someone owns each of those pieces or you make a collective decision internally that over time, you're only gonna be able to do eight of these really well, but in a year or two, you'll be doing all 10 well, right? You just like let yourself off the hook, just decide that as an executive director, if you're solo, there's too much work to get done for one person to do it all well. Um, yeah. without support. So it's okay to kind of just be aspirational over time. We will get to these, all, all 10 of these. Oh, I love that. I'm definitely gonna put the infographic in the show notes <laughs> so, with your permission, of course. Um, I love, cause I, yeah, it's, it's so good to like uh, task it out. Like you said, like, okay, nine to 11, I work on this you know, what are, a one of 10, right? So the one thing, and then later in the afternoon, I work, might work on number five, right? So it's, it, you could do it that way. Like you said, there's so many different ways, or you could just like, I'm going to sprint it out two weeks. I'm just going to work on number one, you know, if that's fundraising or whatever. So yeah, that's a great way. And I also love how you said you could also task the board members too, right? So they have committees, maybe they don't know what to do all the time. So that's something where you could say, hey, I'm going to do five of these really well. These are the five. And then if you guys can handle these five, that would be great because that's where your strengths are. And that goes back to being on those job search or not the job searches, the nomination committees for your board of directors and knowing who's coming in, what matrix of skills they have, right? So that could be a good combination. And then like you said too, is the consultants. Um, you hire somebody out, right, to do the books. Like maybe you hire out just a company. You don't have to uh, actually hire a staff member to do those, but you could hire consultants to do bits and pieces so you can focus on what's most important and where your strengths lies. Um, but I think too, it's like that going back and communicating back to the board that what you first mentioned, right? To say, this is what I'm going to do. And now let me tell you, let, let's have a conversation so you know what page I'm on, right? So is that also an important conversation and how do you bring that up? Yeah, I think that that's important. I'll come back to that uh, in a quick second. It, it, when you were speaking just now, it just came back to me. Like one of the things about the pain points and struggles that executive directors have I don't know about everyone else. I think this is probably true for everyone else. But when you're the only person running the place, you just want to be able to delegate, right? Yeah. The idea that I have 20 things on my plate, can I just trustingly give this thing to another person and they will do it high quality and meet or beat the deadline that I gave them, right? That ability to get things off your plate and be supervising, that's why I always hire out the bookkeeping. Like I know for $50 an hour, couple hours a month, someone's going to be making sure I'm staying legal and staying out of jail, right? Like that's a good investment of my dollars. To have. Yeah, are you getting the W-9s? Are you, are you making sure we're paying everyone on time? So that kind of being able to just delegate stuff is executive directors need to be able to sleep at night. They need to be able to make sure everything's under control and they should not be taking it all under. So sometimes it's worth the money to farm it out and hire someone and just like contract it out, even if it costs a little more than you're comfortable with, because it frees you up to go do the stuff you were actually hired to do, which is like, go raise the money, go set the vision, go kick butt, right? Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to come back to that particular point. And now I'm totally forgetting what the last part of your last question was, because I was like on a roll. No, I love that. But I just want to add to that too, is sometimes it's not 
taking more money if you have to hire someone out, right? And I talked to my freelancers about this too, because it's very similar to what we're talking about is if it's going to take me, even if I only get paid $30 an hour and I have to hire the accountant, that's $50 an hour. If it's going to take me 10 hours of my time to figure out accounting, because that's not where I'm at, right? That's not my high skill. And it's going to take them two hours at $50. It's well worth hiring them. It's actually saving money, right? In a way, like it's, it's because now I can focus on what my skills are and that it's helping the nonprofit overall. So I just wanted to, because I thought was that <laughs> you got me thinking on that too, because I'm like, yes, that's so true. Like it is well worth it. So a lot of times we want to like, oh, that's going to cost, you know, it's going to cost $50 an hour and it's going to be, you know, I don't want to spend any more money from the nonprofit or from my own business and investing in this. But if it's going to take more time, you know, it's going to give you more time than, you know, and you're not fumbling around with learning something. You have no idea what it's about, then it's well worth it, I think. So, yeah. So thanks for that. But yeah, I think the other question, let's see, is just how do executive, well, now I'm going to kind of go into another question because that was answering some of that, but fundraising. All right. Huge thing, huge thing that not, or that executive directors do, right? They need to raise money. They need to help kind of drive the fundraisers. They need to help drive the grant writing, those, those relationships like you're talking about. That in itself is huge. Like it's a huge part of what you do. So would you say you kind of um, put more hours into that component or how do you kind of handle that um, once again, just the fundraising component, because there's a lot of pressure to, for executive directors to secure funding. Yeah. I mean, again, it all depends on the structure of the organization. One of my clients a couple of years ago, they only have like three funders and one of them is, is the city, the city of San Francisco. And it's a very large grant. So they're, they're pretty well taken care of through this one. So they're not diversified, but the amount of time it takes to fundraise is actually really, really small. They're trying mm -hmm. to grow that time and grow that funding my day job, we only have like six funders, but they're all really large. So the, the amount of time I have to fundraise is not that big. The way we're structured, we don't take donation buttons on our website. We don't do direct mail. We don't do online. We only do large, large grants. And there's a reason for that. So mm -hmm. the amount of time that I'm fundraising isn't as much. Now, having said that, most charities aren't like that. So because I love fundraising, because I'm a nerd, and because I just love getting money from where it lives to where I can go make, make change the world with it. Like if it's in some wealthy person's bank account, it is doing nothing but earning them 3%. But for me, I could be solving hunger. So yeah. uh, I want to liberate that money from their bank account and put it to work solving, you know, like the poverty and injustice. So I love fundraising because I'm moving resources to the field and helping to solve real problems with dollars. I find great, great joy in getting a yes during a meeting, right? It's one of the greatest parts of public service and, and, and community service is being able to like resource the work. Mm -hmm. So because I love fundraising and I find joy from it, I put a lot of my time and energy into it. How do I create the conditions where money is gonna come in? Do our materials need to look more attractive? Is all of the team charged with networking? Is, is, um, are we completely rounding up as many success stories and testimonials or everything we can to tell our organizational story well, the marketing materials, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff an executive director needs to do to create the conditions where money is going to come in, making yourself indispensable, make, becoming the center of gravity or thought leaders in your space, right? Creating those conditions so that when it comes time to actually do asking, that's actually a tiny part of your actual agenda, right? You only have a couple hours a week where you're actually talking to funders. It just becomes so much easier. 
So for many organizations, I would say the executive director, um, many executive directors uh, see fundraising as like, oh God, I don't want to have to do that, but I know I need to. It's like this, they bemoan it, right? And if you have that attitude, you're, you're, you're not going to want to get around to it as much. If you see it as joyful, if you actually are like, wow, anything I want to do in this nonprofit, hiring five more staff, giving away the stuff I don't want to do to a consultant, anything I want to do can be solved with more money. If I just go out and get more money, look, what, look at all these other things I can do. So that investment and fundraising, building up a reserve in these, in these times, like my organization has pretty strong reserves right now, that allows me to sleep at night. It gives me the emotional space to think. I can take a Tuesday afternoon and not take any meetings and actually have time to think about strategy because I'm not freaking out about payroll, right? That is capacity. That is strategy. So I think executive directors need to create that buffer, create a rainy day fund, create just reserves, create more money by fundraising. And it means creating a culture of asking across the organization. Everyone needs to be raising money. One of the things we talked about in the board training we did together is this idea that our essentially, not legally, the board basically owns the nonprofit mm -hmm. and all owners of all not-for-profit corporations, all corporations, not-for-profit or regular, all owners of all corporations are responsible for revenue, period. So board members need to be responsible for revenue. You can't pass a budget. This is how much we're going to raise and spend and then bye, see you next year. You just said, we're gonna raise this, you need to help. So boards need to fundraise. So the ED's number one role in fundraising is getting a board to help. Yeah, oh, I love that. And I love that rainy day fund. And just, you know, to kind of talk about that a little bit more is just because you're a nonprofit organization, right? You don't need to spend every single dollar every year. Like it is, that's does not, that does not mean nonprofit right there, right? So you still need to have reserves in some way for those rainy days because, you know, especially if you're dependent a lot on grants, which you shouldn't be, but a lot of organizations are, right? Those grants can go away from year to year. Um, they yeah. may be fully approved, et cetera, so. Yeah, let me just say and reiterate to folks that nonprofit, we have got to get out of this scarcity thinking and this poverty mindset. You are not supposed to operate at zero dollars. You are not supposed to spend everything you raise. You are not supposed to constantly be paycheck to paycheck, hand, hand out to hand out. That is not the way the sector is supposed to be. Being a not-for-profit organization just means that all of the revenue is not dispersed to shareholders. That's all that means. You are not amassing wealth and giving it away to stakeholders. You absolutely should have reserves foundations want to see you solvent and stable with reserves. So shake this uh, you know, mindset that people have that somehow it, it, it's, it's immoral or unfair to our donors to be sitting on reserves, or we could be serving four more people if we just spent this money. No, 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 no. You're, you're not good to anyone if you're gone. <laughs> you're, you need to be there and around and stable and paying your bills. So just don't be shy about building up reserves. Yes. And absolutely. And just what you're saying, like, I've seen it real, like people freaking out about payroll, like, how am I going to do this? And, and I've seen that too many times where, man, that you're not able to take that Tuesday off and focus on strategic planning, which is where you should be doing your work, right? You're more in the strategic level than just putting out virtual 24 hour uh, fires, right? It's like constant. I see that a lot with executive directors getting burned out. So I think, you know, what you've had to say today is going to help a lot of the listeners out there 
Um, and I know you're going to go more in depth in the masterclass. So once again, you guys do, if you're interested in what you're hearing today, if you want more knowledge on this, even you freelancers out there, like this is something that you could really understand on that level. So before we wrap up, I have another question for you, Sean, on that note, because I do get a lot of people who are nonprofit consultants and freelance grant writers listening. And so many, so much of what you said today kind of banged on that too, for me, like just organizational development and that sort of thing. So as a consultant yourself, and being an executive director, what skills do you really pull from an executive director um, kind of classification into your consultancy work? And how do you, you know what I mean? Like, how can you really um, take that, those skills developed and, and utilize those and harness those in your consultancy? Well, being a consultant, my uh, most nonprofit consultants out there are focusing on grant writing or fundraising or strategic planning or facilitating board retreats, right? Mm -hmm. My focus has overwhelmingly been an executive director is because I've been one five times. I've never had an orientation when I started a job. You know, there's a meeting, someone meets with you and says, hey, here's where the, here's where, here's where you can find stuff, but there's really no orientation. You're kind right. of like thrown immediately into the deep end and- <laughs> No onboarding. <laughs> no onboarding, no orientation. There's like a couple like, welcome aboard, uh, figure it out. Here's the keys. I literally was handed the keys once on my first executive director job and said, go win us our freedoms. You know, like, I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay, great. So because of that isolation and loneliness and whatever, because I've been there, I have been there when you're like, oh my God, how am I even going to make payroll? I don't have this board that isn't engaged and they have all these opinions and they're giving me these lines. Like, I don't need to fundraise because I give of my time. I'm like, well, I can't pay bills with your time. So you need to fundraise, right? Like, I don't know what you were told when you got here, but it's a new day in town, right? I understand the challenges that executive directors have gone through, especially with young, small, new, and like under $2 million nonprofits, even under $500,000 nonprofits because I understand that my the foundation of my consultancy and the foundation of how I build my courses and my products is I just cut right to the chase every product I have it is like one page two page no bullshit sorry for like swearing on your podcast no okay. BS no fluff none of this oh let's talk about that I just get right to the point you need quick solutions quick shortcuts no one has the time to read for me, the fundraising book I came out with, it is literally 25 tear out tools. You tear it out and you immediately nice. use it it's like a book you have to read. I love books that you need to read. But for me, my materials are really get right to the chase, get right to the solution. No one has the time, practical, practical solutions. So I, I think I understand that there's 20 things pulling on an executive director. They have to be strong to their board, strong to their stakeholders, strong to their staff. It leaves them very little room to be vulnerable, which is what humans need to be, right? So it's filled with contradictions, the role of an executive director. And I understand that. So I've built a lot of my resources for executive directors, which are my most popular resources uh, because I've lived that life uh, you know, for a while now. And I will say to a lot of your, your base and your followers and your audience who are consultants, and uh, freelancers, many, many freelancers, many people who end up as executive directors started as fundraisers or started as grant writers or started in development. So in order for you to understand the executive director role, to be able to relate to your client, to be able to understand this, this course could be really, really powerful for them too. Uh, because I, I think that understanding what it takes to actually run a nonprofit can only improve your nonprofit career. Oh, I love that. I, I absolutely agree. So I'm really excited about this masterclass coming up. So uh, just to go ahead and plug the masterclass again, so you guys have the opportunity to join it. It will be a live masterclass and it is the executive director masterclass, three expert strategies to slay your doubts, boost your confidence and career. And that will be coming up on March 23rd, right, Sean? 
24th, I believe. 24th, uh, sorry. Yeah, in San Francisco, it'll be the 24th. All right, San Francisco will be the 24th. So I'll definitely have the link to the uh, sign up in the show notes today. Um, but yeah, also um, you'll have links too to where you can find Sean. And Sean, you can find him at uh, learn.mindthegapconsulting.com and as well as nonfixer.com, uh, right? Nonprofit, sorry, nonprofitfixer.com. Nonprofitfixer.com. Uh, yeah, nonprofitfixer.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the grant writing and funding podcast. I can't wait to have you back on again and to do the masterclass with you. So it'll be a lot of fun um, to see more about executive directorship, because I know that is so important, like you said, for um, just people running nonprofits, they get so much stuff thrown at them. They don't know where to start and they don't have time to read a 360 page manual (laughs) with academic jargon like they don't. Right. They want those checklists. So I am a fan of checklists. I'm a fan of courses being straight up. I love the no BS approach. Um, That's so awesome because that's what we need, right? Time is our most valuable asset in this day and age. Um, You know, we want time with our family. We want time with our loved ones. We want time for ourselves. We want, you know, there's so much that's pulling at us that to be able to get to the point where you can execute as soon as possible and have a roadmap is so, so valuable. So I appreciate the work that you do in developing those products. Um, because I know that they're helping so many people. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for all you do. So happy to be back. Yes. Awesome. So we will see you again, Sean. Thank you again and have a wonderful weekend. You too. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode with Mr. Sean Kosofsky of The Nonprofit Fixer. Once again, if you want to check out any of those great resources, including the 10 key responsibilities of executive directors, the downloadable infographic, or if you want to sign up for the free masterclass, Executive Director Masterclass, Three Expert Strategies to Slay Your Doubts, Boost Your Confidence and Career, which is happening on March 24th. Go ahead and jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 158. And as always, if you love this podcast episode, please do leave a review on your podcast listener, which means iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast so other folks can also find it. It really does help. I appreciate you guys and love you. See you next week.